Welcome everybody to Looming in the Numinous. Today we got a great bundle of joy named Sarah Barbuto. She is a marriage and family therapist. Uh, we get into those topics as well as the ones that cause family to come from marriage. And we're talking about sex. If you'd like me to sing it, well you're not in luck because that's not happening today. But anyways, I hope you enjoy this conversation with Sarah. She is a wonderful person and a dear part of our family. And we love her and enjoy this talk. Yeah. <laughs> so when I'm speaking, you're hearing me through the headphones right now. That's pretty cool. I'm not even looking at you. I'm talking with the microphone, but I know that somebody's on the other end hearing what I'm saying. That's you, sir, over my right shoulder. Wherever you feel it's comfortable pointing at you. <laughs> This makes me think of Saturday Night Live and the sweaty balls. <laughs> um, yes. You want to come um, try my chocolate hello. sweaty balls? So I would just <laughs> like to talk about how delicious these sweaty balls are. They just sit so nicely in your mouth and they really, they're quite savory. Mm. Uh, 86ers. <laughs> 86ers. Except I don't remember anything. And you do. Well, you remember. I remember lots of things. I I like you pull, get my references. I get your references. Yeah, I can't quote them as well. That's probably what I should say. But my memory is also kind of crazy. Yes, that's that's an interesting topic. Yes. I think everybody's mind is a little bit crazy. <laughs> well, yes. Yeah, but I just I absolutely believe that like within my like being that everybody is just a little bit crazy in their own way. Well. I mean that yes, but I when I talk about my crazy memory, I'm uh-huh. talking about the detail to which I remember things. Oh yes. Yes. So are we going? Like I don't Oh yeah. Okay. I didn't know if this is part of it or if we were just being us. That's yeah. great. So yeah, my memory. So my brother will laugh all the time because we'll be telling stories and he'll be like, Where were you? I was like Oh, I was sitting in the second row of Mrs. Ramage's class. And he's like, what were you wearing? I was wearing the pink and blue checkered dress. And I was so mad because mom made me wear a dress to the first day of school. And like all of this obscene detail that Uh is seemingly inconsequential. Yeah. But I, I just can't help it. And I often hold back on how much detail I share things in or how much I remember about people. Yeah. Because I'm so worried that I'm going to freak them out. Huh. So yeah, there there are lots of details that I remember that just stick up here. Yeah. But I also think that that's why you and Kate get along so well is because Kate is very much like that. That is very true. And I often get to hear you guys sing Disney together. Yes. And sometimes just overhear it and I like snicker a little, find your guys' back and I go, that's so silly. <laughs> but really, you're just sad. I'm just sad because I, <laughs> I can't remember the lyrics. It's and... really a FOMO situation. But yeah. that's the thing. Like when we sing together, we have to sing, like we can't just sing the lyrics and we don't just see them straight. Yeah. Like we also have to give breaks for like if there's like verbal exchanges, for dramatic pauses. It's, it has to be exactly how it's done in the movie. Yes. And that's, she gets that. She so. gets that. Yeah, she's, yeah. That's why she's my friend's soulmate. That's that's why she's your friend. <laughs> exactly. So do you, is there only one friend soulmate or can oh, there no. be multiple? There's multiple friend soulmates. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. All right, soulmates. Do you believe in them? Like as in romantic partners? Yes. As in romantic partners. Okay, so here's my take on romantic partners. I think 
I'm going to say that I don't believe in the one. Okay. Yeah. So I definitely believe in soulmates. Mm. Um, I have at various points in my life met different people who make my soul come alive for various reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think since we're such complex people, there are so many different facets to our identity. Mm. Like somebody can really bring forth this one aspect of who I am and make my soul come alive in that way. And then, you know, in another way, like this other friend will draw it out. And so when it comes to romantic partners, I don't believe in the one because I think so much of marriage and of relationships in general requires Mm -hmm. such a conscious choice of like waking up to say like, I'm choosing you today. I'm choosing to put in the effort into this relationship today. And Mm -hmm. so while there are a number of different types of people that I feel like I could see my life going a very good route with that person, or I could probably be very happy with that person. Mm -hmm. For me personally, I'm holding out for somebody who I feel can like make me come alive Uh more holistically. So I've had guys that have made me like, I was really super attracted to them and that facet was really there. And then I've had other guys who like, we really connect on a spiritual level and Mm -hmm. there's that spiritual intimacy and vulnerability. And I've had other guys who like, I feel like I connect with on an emotional level or a humor level or an interest level, but I haven't, and this is, I'm still single. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't met anybody who's kind of engaged all those facets of me. Uh And I think just kind of talking about relationships and the one or soulmates one of my biggest pet peeves is just kind of like the mentality that i think so many people have of the idea of being completed by somebody else which is impossible yes (laughs) yes and And that's very much part of since we were talking disney that is also something that like our generation kind of grew up with the idea of happily ever after yes we'll we'll edit out those habitat (laughs) <laughs> Those porky pig moments. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you were channeling like bibbity bobbity boo. Oh, I, I could have. Yeah, I happily, could have gone that happily, way. Happily, happily, ever. I just feel lately I've I've been having a lot of porky pig moments. Oh, okay. Yeah, where I just like I start fumbling over the order in which the sentence that is in my mind should come out. Do you think you're putting too much pressure on yourself for things to come out eloquently? Oh yes, it's it's a very well known fact too that I I absolutely I'm doing it right now as I'm thinking and speaking over <laughs> overthink. <laughs> I am just like so meticulous is too generous of a word Mm -hmm. about like how I want to present myself. But then I'm thinking about it too much that I just end up making a fool of myself. No, not really. No, not at all. Not at all. It's just, it's, it's a Markism. It's a me thing. Thank you for it being Markism and not Marxism. Mm -hmm. Um, We're glad for that difference. Yeah. Um, But I think it kind of goes back to what we were talking about in the kitchen and one of our kitchen talks. Yes. Is even just earlier is the idea that it takes practice to cultivate that vulnerability in that relationship and to engage in conversations. Mm -hmm. And so there are some, and this kind of wraps in the soulmate thing too. There are some people who it just flows so naturally because they have this presence about them that makes you just kind of ease into the conversation and you're like, oh, I feel safe. I can just be. Uh And then there are other situations, particularly if we're being watched or, you know, that whole spectator aspect of it, where when we're conscious of the fact that other people are going to be hearing about what we're saying, Mm -hmm. we feel like we have to choose it more and more. Oh yeah. And so, so much more intention. I want to make sure that I come across this way. I hope I don't come across this way. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times those are the very things that get in the way of us just being our genuine selves. 
Well, that's just another thing too with like life. Um, there's so much stuff that you're going to grow up with, so much baggage that you, you know, you are cultivated to carry just by where you grew up and you partake in that cultivation. But as you get older, um, you know, if you make your life like a field for corn or hay or whatever, and it's just, you know, you have to rotate the soil in what crop it grows. My family back home, I, I can't remember what the, the difference was, but it was a certain amount of years growing beans in the field and then change it out for corn. And mm -hmm. it's just like, I guess the point I'm trying to get to is that like, even as you get older, you have to remember you need to retill your field. Yeah. And there's stuff that you have cultivated along your life that you really do just have to get rid of and, and shed off and cultivate something new in place of it. Well, I mean, that even ties in. So... For those of you who don't know me, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Oh yeah, we're, yeah, we're, we're going we're gonna to talk about that now. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist. Um, I, I assume you'll have a whole introductory spiel or, oh, yeah. you know, rapid fire yeah. we gotta make We got to make you look real good before. Oh, sweet. Okay, so good. Stu and I will take about 20 minutes okay. at some point and we'll talk about it. Mm -hmm. And really him just consoling me and stop overthinking what you're going to say mm -hmm. and just sit down for one minute and do an intro. And that's, that's how that one works. That's why I'm so grateful for community. <laughs> yes. Which we have been fortunate of in yes. this time. Yes, we because have. Because we all got locked into this house. Yes, we did. Together. And it became very much like a sitcom where there's just like ebbs and flows to how we all get along in this house. <laughs> that is true. That yeah. that definitely happens. Yeah. But that is that is what community looks like. Well, I you know, it's so funny because like what initially brought me to living with you guys was well, it was a few reasons. One was just to be able to cut down costs mm -hmm. and pay down some debt and then COVID hit and online shopping. Hello. Yeah. Um, so I am being able to pay down debt, which is great. And I'm so grateful. Mm -hmm. But two, I think just, I had lived by myself for four years and grown so accustomed to living by myself. Part of it was one that I struggle with depression and the winter months are really hard. Mm -hmm. um, and two, just the Kate and I had talked about in Dillon. I mean, honestly, Dillon was pretty instrumental in mm -hmm. why I live here. She was like, Sarah, you just need to live with Mark and Kate. <laughs> She's like, it's great. I'm telling you. And I'm like, but I'm so worried about damaging our friendship. I'm so worried. Like, what if they really know me and they don't love me? And I think that that's the, the biggest thing that keeps us from vulnerability in general is that if I truly let you see who I am, mm -hmm. for me, my greatest fear is if you see all that there is to me, you won't like it. Mm -hmm. And so for so many years, I would let one group of people see this part of me, another group of people see this part of me and such and such. And mm -hmm. I'd be honest about struggles that were real, but it probably wasn't until college that I let anybody see it all because I told people just enough to show that I was human and I oh, struggle yeah. with things. But really, I it, it truly wasn't until college and one of my best friends, Christina, back home, you can't fake it with people that you live with. And she was my freshman roommate. And so I was just so worried about that here. Um, and I think, you know, that kind of ties into what we've been talking about with vulnerability that keeps us from it. But I look back on it now and I'm so, so grateful because I think if I were living by myself during COVID, I would not be doing well. Oh, yeah. And I'm hearing that so often in the patients that I talk with that people are, I mean, we're seeing so many different things and it's like, we're trying to stay safe, 
but we're also seeing other repercussions of what uh, the isolation is doing. And I'm just so grateful, even when we do have our sitcom conflict and stuff, that I'm just grateful I don't live alone. And yeah. I would I would not be okay right now. No, especially in the, the harder times and like nothing was open. Yeah. That oh was... my gosh, yes. I mean, I probably would have had to reach out at some point, but that's not always an easy thing to do either. So. Yeah. And especially if you get into a depressive state, it will be harder to ask for help. Well, I have a hard time asking for help in general. Mm-hmm. I'm very much encouraging, especially in my occupation, of others doing that. And I very readily make myself available to help others. But it is really hard to ask for help. Yeah. And it is really hard even to say I'm struggling, particularly if you struggle with depression because... Depression is such a dirty liar. Yeah. It tells you that you're totally alone, that nobody's uh, going to get this. You're invalidating yourself the whole time. You shouldn't be feeling this way. Mm-hmm. You should be grateful because it's not as bad as X, Y, and Z. You know, so then it's like the longer you experience that, the more tempting it is to believe it, making it even harder and harder and harder to ask for help. Yeah. Two things may popped up. One was the asking for help I want to get back to in regards to me, but just the depression leading you to a place of just feeling like absolute loneliness. Mm-hmm. And I can't, this is, this is going to be another, you know, Mark butchered quote. It's this thing about loneliness and solitude. And they're defined the same way of like, I am, I am alone, but there is a positive connotation to one and a negative to another. And solitude, loneliness can be good. But yeah, if you are alone and you start to have the fear of loneliness, mm-hmm. I think that, I don't know, I feel like it's kind of a hand-in-hand thing with depression. I think, too, solitude is a conscious choice. Yes. I'm choosing Absolutely. to be alone. Loneliness is, I'm feeling alone, but I don't want to be. Yes. And I think that that's the common thing that happens with people who struggle with depression is, I want to be alone so much because I don't want to expose anybody else to what I'm feeling, and it's just actually one of the symptoms of depression Mm -hmm. but then also like I don't want to be alone but I don't know how to reach out to somebody I don't know how they're not going to get it they're Mm -hmm. they're going to tell me to suck it up and I mean let's be real there's a lot of stigma around mental health even though it's getting better and lots of messages from families and cultures that impact you know and so that's why we see so many people who struggle and I'm one of them yeah. who, when I tell people that I struggle with a mental health diagnosis, they're like, what? You? Because I'm this bright, bubbly person. Uh-huh. Um, and I am a very joyful person. You, you um, are. You're a very joyful person. And... Who struggles like most people. I struggle. <laughs> Just kind of goes back to what you were talking about with the tilling. And that's something that we see a lot with trauma. And just with, you know, development and growing in general is... There are behaviors that are in place through childhood, particularly people who grow up in environments where there's trauma or they have a traumatic incident and their behaviors, they're protective. So people pleasing is one of them Mm -hmm. or denial of self, just thinking, you know, my needs aren't as important as other people's needs. Mm -hmm. And so, but then as you grow and as you heal and as you change, you recognize, oh, wait a second, this isn't serving me anymore. Mm -hmm. And so you have to let it go but it's hard to let go because that was also serving a function in your life well, it was something that identified you absolutely at the time and absolutely there are certain things that are identity factors to people that are just hard to let go of and and you see people wear it like i have 
two shirts that I wore in high school still. And I wanted to kind of get rid of one, but Kate was like, that's the best shirt you own. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, I guess I'll keep it. it. It's just a whole other part of like my life that was like years ago. And I actually had this epiphany today because my hair's bleached mm-hmm. and I haven't done that in about 20 years. And yeah. it really did make me think about like, you know, I found this picture of me at probably, I'm guessing I'm 15, 14, 15. And that kid was going through some some changes and some, yeah. I think back then is for me, I was always the, uh, the friend of my group who like I could dabble in everything everybody else did and I'd be pretty good at it, mm-hmm. but I was never like the best at, I was always second best mm. at everything mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in terms of somebody else. And like skateboarding? Like skateboarding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had yeah, a lot of friends that I was much better at than they were, but I had a few that were much better than me and they were the ones who were, the ones that were better than me were the ones that were getting me like hooked up with other skaters and helping me network in Boise. But then there was this like falling out between them and that little group of ours like disbanded and then I wasn't the best of them. Mm. So our flow wasn't passed on to me because I was just part of like the group. Yeah. <laughs> and so that damaged me. Yeah. In some ways. This isn't about me. This is it is a little bit. It's it actually is. all about me. This this show. My it's my <laughs> podcast. <laughs> the Mark Show. The Mark Show. Starring Sarah. I do not ask for help, but I also I don't think for me that it's like a depressive thing. I'm just very stubborn and I believe stubborn or prideful? Kind of both. A little okay. both. <laughs> But I also know this, like, know this too, that like growing up with, you know, from five to 12, not having a dad in the house, my brother was four years older. Uh, he was out doing what brothers four years older than me at the time were doing. Oh, yeah. Like he was around every once in a while we get, we played and stuff, but like, and I lived in this like retirement neighborhood and my mom was a single mom working all the time. So I had to kind of like fend for myself and mm-hmm. teach myself how to like, do things and cooking and cleaning and I taught myself lots of stuff (laughs) yeah you're still very much a self-taught person like yeah I could just YouTube this but that but that is why I'm rounding out to that's why I don't ask for help is because I'm just very much like I can do that Mm -hmm. if I really want to do that I I can do that Mm -hmm. and then if I like fail at it a lot of times it's like well maybe I'll get back to it later Mm. Like my motorcycle that's been sitting in the garage for four years because it just, it was running and it, and it was running good. And then it just broke one day and I, it's more like a time factor, but I'm also just delaying it. I could be out there working on it. I just never do. I mean, I think any of us could name a number of things or tasks that we could be doing. Those things that we've put off, I could be working on that or I could be doing this, you mm-hmm. know? And I think for you in particular... You have young children and mm. you have a job and you're working from home and hey, we're in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah. <laughs> and so it's probably okay that the motorcycle sits for a little bit. A little bit longer, yeah. Yeah, a little bit. That's but okay. the asking for help piece, I mean, yeah, you you learn those skills out of necessity, really. Because um, mm. maybe it's part of your just like personality makeup maybe even if you did have a dad present you would have still been that way like maybe that's just how you're wired you don't know but that's part of what made you need that yeah and then it's it's comfortable to do that and for me 
I have a hard time asking for help too because, well, to be totally honest, I like people thinking that I have it all together. It feels good, which is what kept me from being open and vulnerable with people for so long. But it's also what kept me feeling like I was white knuckling it for most of my life. Mm -hmm. And I remember this one time I was in high school. I was crying because I was just having a really bad day. And this girl comes in and she's like, but you're Sarah Barbuto. You never have bad days. And I remember being so mad because I was like, just let me have my bad day. And then I realized looking back on it now, like I was putting something out there that made people think that I had it all together. Mm -hmm. And I liked people thinking that because then, as long as they thought I had it all together, I could go under the radar and I was protected from letting them see me, which Uh. goes back to the fear of if they really see me, what if they don't like me? Mm -hmm. Or worse, what if I expose them to who I am and find out I'm not lovable? Mm -hmm. And so, but honestly, I can say that I have through incredible friends through a lot of healing and a lot of work and great therapy (laughs) I can truthfully say that the choice to be vulnerable pays off far greater Mm -hmm. and in a lot of ways it has one because when we're vulnerable we give other people the okay to be vulnerable too yeah and so there are times that I'm in situations that I'm conscious of like okay I'm just gonna put it out there I'm gonna be the one who takes it here yeah and then other people are like oh my gosh thank you so much um one time I shared at a women's retreat about my struggle with depression and I had so many women coming up to me saying like oh my gosh I had never heard somebody within a church or Christian environment Mm -hmm. share openly about depression thank you so much and even I thought it felt so good to have people think that I had it all together but it feels so much better because what vulnerability does is it enables us to connect to each other Mm -hmm. and so whether people know my story or, or the intricacies of my story or not, my willingness to be vulnerable enables them to connect to me because, for instance, with my clients, you know, they don't know my story, but when they open up about their pain or about that darkness of depression or that hopelessness and I'm fully present to it, mm-hmm. they're like, I don't know why, but she gets it. I don't know why she gets it, but I feel like she gets it. Yeah. And just that willingness to go there. One, first with myself, but then two with other people, I found like, yeah, I am very much outright a hot mess and mm-hmm. will broadcast that to the world. Yeah. Um, and when people get into, you know, because people will be like, oh my gosh, you're so great. You're always so happy. Like, I'm very quick to dispel that. Like, no, I'm not. <laughs> so I, I want, since we're getting back to your career, yeah, what got you into this? Like, I want to get into past Sarah that led sure. Sarah to being a licensed family and marriage marriage and family therapist. marriage and family yes. therapist i had it backwards but, no it's um, okay i mean really it's kind of interchangeable how did you get to this yeah i when i was in college i initially started out as a liberal studies major because i wanted to be a kindergarten teacher yeah my classroom by the way was gonna be like bug themed and like kind of like what kind of bugs like ladybugs like yes yeah ladybugs and fireflies and like you know butterflies basically the cast of a bug's life 
essentially. <laughs> yeah. And but I wanted it to be like green, and I want I wanted it to be like a Bugs Land at Disneyland, yeah. and like for kindergartners to come. May in. it rest in peace. And oh, right, yeah. but that's okay. We're okay with that. Um, but and I would be Miss B because Barbudo. Can you oh, imagine yeah. like five year olds trying to say Barbudo? They would just botch it. So did you plan this when you're in kindergarten? Yeah, probably. Um, no, I I love kids. I've, it's always... That is something that is very true about you. You love yes, kids. I love I kids. I see you love on so many kids, and it's a beautiful thing. Mm, thank so thank you. you for loving on my kids as well as the kids of others. I love your kids. I think your kids are some of the coolest kids. Yeah, they're okay. Yeah. No, I like it. No, I, I told Cece today, I was like, Cece, do you know what? And she's like, what? I was like, you're my favorite three-year-old. And she was like... Like, it was just because it's so cool to see her starting to register those kinds of things. But it, mm-hmm. that's one of the things I miss about home is back home in Pasadena. I'm so proud to be from Pasadena. Um, I was part of a, a really strong church community. I was Auntie Sarah to so many of my friends' kids and everything like that. And so yeah. it's it's a joy for me to have such close friends up here like you guys you guys are my chosen family up here. Um, so to be able to love on your kids, is just like, that's such a huge part of who I am. So I'm always grateful for that. And back to Miss B. Yeah, so I wanted to be a kindergarten teacher. I was like, well, I love kids. I'm really passionate about learning and education. I love like children's books. A like bucket list item is to write a children's book. Have my dad illustrate it. He's super talented. Oh, your dad's an artist. Oh my gosh, my dad is so talented. And then I started my freshman year college. Um, I went to a private Christian liberal arts school, point yeah. two miles away from Newport Beach. And I hated my liberal studies class. It was just not interesting to me. And I was like, I just don't want to do this. And I was taking a psychology class. Steve Kafari's intro to psychology class. Professor Kafari used to be a jockey. Super cool man. Like really, I learned so much from him. And I was taking that class and it just came so naturally to me because I've always loved people and I'm fascinated by people. It just kind of clicked and made sense. And so I went through this huge identity crisis because remember, I was this kid who had it all together all the time. I was the straight A student who would get really mad if I got an A minus. And so... I had a plan, like the plan was, I'm gonna study this, I'm gonna do this. And then I was like, I think I wanna study psychology. And it was like this whole like melodramatic, like I just thought I knew who I was and I don't anymore. And then come to find out like, for most kids, they change their majors like three times in their undergraduate career. But for me, it was so shocking because I was like, but no, I have this all figured out. And so anyways, that's how I ended up studying psychology. And then I forever wanted to be Dr. Barbuto. Like I wanted to get my PhD or Mm -hmm. PsyD in in that. It just sounds so good, Dr. Barbuto. Yeah, Um, it has a nice ring to it. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Barbuto. Dr. Barbuto. Also, I just have the best last name. It's pretty solid. It's pretty solid. But anyways, yeah. So then after college, I knew I wanted to go to grad school, but also was like, I'm 21 years old and don't know anything about life. And Mm. who's going to want to listen to some 21 year old tell them how to be better in their marriage when I'm not married or like tell them how to raise their kids. And yes, it's not life's experience that enables us to speak into situations, Mm. but I'm grateful that I realized that. 
Well, that's just the dynamic of it. Like relationships go outside of what we define relationships to be. Marriage is just, it, it is, it is a social construct in a lot of ways, but it is also um, a very, uh, I guess you could say spiritual thing, a, a numinous thing. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. ding, uh, has to, that word has to be mentioned at least once per podcast, okay. but it's just, it really is like we discussed earlier, Kate and I choose each other every day. Mm-hmm. And I know that she's going to be a pain in the ass for me as well as I am probably tenfold much more a pain in the ass than she is. Cause I feel like she has a lot more together than mm-hmm. I, together than I do. Like she's a machine and I'm just like, I like numbers and reading books, <laughs> <laughs> but everybody still grows up with relationships and you can be the, you can see the ins and outs with your siblings, with your parents, with your friends. Um, you know, my growing up for me, my friends were very much a bigger part of like my family. Like I air quoted that, uh, in a way and parting from them over years was like a really long time. I like, it was just a really long, hard, like process because I never thought I'd be the one who moved away. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm the one who moved away. And as mm-hmm. far as I know, my like core group of friends growing up still all live in Idaho in the Boise city area, living that Boise life. I'm, I'm telling <laughs> you, my mind did go to trailer park in Idaho. Yeah. Well, Every time you say Idaho, that's all I can that's think what most about. people. So Idaho. Most, it's it's uh, trailer parks and potatoes and uh, and uh, white supremacists is all I hear about my home state. Well, I just <laughs> got that from House Bunny, so yeah. But it's it's true. That's all all I hear outside yeah. of it, and that's why everybody's always shocked when I say I'm from Idaho. I'm like, you don't seem like you're from Idaho. I'm like, it's because Idaho's not what you think it is. That's what everybody <laughs> says about me. They don't believe that I'm from LA. Like, yeah. People think that I'm like from the South or something like that, and. Yeah. I'm like, no, LA is full of very kind, very friendly people. So yeah. most of the time it's people who are transplants who are the more LA stereotype. Oh yeah. So yeah. Anyways, uh, relationships, you can relate to any relationship because you yourself have been a part of relationships Absolutely. all growing up. You've had your ups and downs with certain people. You have unfriended some people in the actual sense, not just the social media sense. <laughs> Yeah. And, and we we all have, and so going through hardships of those relationships are preparation for someday possibly getting married. Well, and that's the thing is like you know you when I meet people, people would come into my office with you know any sort of feelings or any sort of situation that brings them there to see me. And when I was doing couples counseling, people asked if I was married, and I said, "No, I'm not." Does that bother you? And they said, "Well, how can you give us advice on how to be married?" And I said, "Well, what I studied is relationships and particularly communication, mm-hmm. and so I'm here to assess your communication, and I'm here to assess the system that is your marriage, and uh-huh. so I am not a married person." But I am here to assess how you interact with one another and how that impacts your family system because I'm Mm. a systems therapist. Yes. So basically understanding that an individual is only a part of their system. We can get into that more. But back to how I got into this. Yeah. So yeah, I took a break after I wasn't ready for grad school. And so I was a 911 operator and police dispatcher for three years. Um, did that after college. Got and some stories? I have many stories. I mm. do. You gotta um, get at least one. Okay. I, I can give you one of those. Um, <laughs> it just kind of 
you know, it was a job I never envisioned for myself, to be honest. Like, my uncle's in law enforcement, and he's the one who told me about it. My mom's like, Sarah, you'd be really good at that. And I was like, okay. Yeah. And my brother used to joke, like, of course you'd find a job that you could talk on the phone all day. Like, yeah. But yeah, so I did that. And so I was constantly counseling people in the midst of crisis and trauma. Yeah. But that was really difficult because we would get these, like, kind of repeat calls and we'd be sending units to the same houses quite a bit for domestic. Um, situations or you know getting child abuse reports or and I I have such a tender heart and Mm -hmm. um, very empathic and so it was super heavy for me and I just kind of it was a great job but also it took so much out of me and I was working graveyard shifts and I was also working at the church there's just so much going on and my best friend Christina was like Sarah you're just supposed to be a counselor like Mm -hmm. that's just who you are because I would go places and like the grocery store and I would just ask somebody, how are you? How's your day? And I'd get random people from the grocery store clerk or the person next to me, you know, in the airplane or the Starbucks barista who would open up about very deep things. And then also I was that person for all friends and family and stuff like that. So it just flowed very naturally out of who I was, but also I'm very grateful for that time as a dispatcher, because one, it, it, I talked about needing to grow up, like it mm. grew me up because yeah. I was exposed to a lot, but it also kind of laid the foundation because I helped people in the midst of crisis. And then it, re- it laid a really strong foundation for helping people heal from crisis and trauma. Mm. Um, and so I started out in a doctoral program. Um, I went to Fuller in Pasadena and I was on my way to be... Sarah Barbuto or Dr. Barbuto. Dr. Barbuto. Dr. Barbuto, Sarah Barbuto's ID. And um, I was also a youth pastor at the time. Which is something I honestly think I just recently learned about you. Oh, yeah. Well, I knew that, like, when I first met you, you were helping out with the church that we we go to. Mm -hmm. But then I don't think, I think you went more towards worship. And I didn't really know how much of a part you played in the youth group. Mm-hmm. at this church but yes i just recently found out you're actually a youth pastor at yeah. your home church in pasadena yeah i did that for five years and what was... what age were you when you started when i started doing youth ministry yes i was 21 you were 21 so i did until okay. i was 26 and yeah i was like right after college and you know like i said it was a really strong church community i'm super grateful for it multicultural multi-generational very globally minded we did a lot of like work within our community locally, but then also had a lot of global context as well and Mm -hmm. partnered with missionaries in Sri Lanka. And honestly, like I got to, I've been to Europe seven times and a middle-class kid doesn't really get that kind of luxury, but it was all through missions work. And then when I studied abroad in college, but it, it was incredible. And so you know, my mom was pregnant with me when my family started going there. And so I grew up very visibly in the church. It was a smaller church too. So everybody like had me in their Sunday school class or I babysat their kids or whatever. And it was so formative for me, um, that environment. And so when I moved home after I graduated, I knew I wanted to pour back in and that just, I just loved it. And those are some of my most cherished memories. Which also falls in line with your love of kids. Exactly. Exactly. And yeah, it's so funny because 
so many therapists don't like working with adolescents. Mm. And that is like the group that I love working with. Like my group is like, I love adolescents and I love young adults. And like that just comes so naturally for me. Yeah. But yeah, it was, it was an incredible, incredible experience and youth ministry and youth leadership. It was like the times of turning Taylor Swift songs into screamo songs <laughs> in my car, which I can demonstrate not on a microphone, were just as essential as those times of having youth group. And music is huge. Again, it is this. huge in my family. So that's kind of how I got into it. But like I look at it and this is what I tell people is... You know, especially the young people I work with is I look at my life and there are things that I did, whether it was a learning experience or a job experience, and I can truly look back on it and say, like, that was not wasted time. Mm -hmm. Whether it was a lesson that I had to learn individually in my life or pointing to something that I was ready to let go of or to want to be in a new direction or just like random knowledge that, you know, aids me now, Mm -hmm. it's... It's just really cool to see how, like, so much of our experiences are determined by how we choose to interpret them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, like, part of phenomenology. It is what, it's everything that you take in, all these actants on on your life, you know, Mm -hmm. working. You've had all these experiences and they've shaped you, but they also shape how you choose to see how your life happens and how you want to see it go Mm -hmm. but the part about seeing where you want it to go is you don't actually know if you're making the right choice until the choice has been made that's true and going back to my point though Mm -hmm. is even in instances where i wasn't sure whether or not i was making the right choice some of the best ways to find out what you want to do is to find out what you don't want to do oh yeah that's another thing i tell the young people that i work with is We as a society, as a culture, place so much pressure on these kids. Like, you need to know. And we still feel it, right? Oh, absolutely. It's the next thing. Like, oh, well, when are you going to decide where you want to go to college? Oh, are you going to get married? Oh, when are you going to have kids? Oh, Mm -hmm. like, when are you going to do this? Or when are you going to do that? I think there's so much pressure. And I certainly felt that pressure. Like, I need to have it figured out. I need to have a direction. I need to. And part of that is like how we're wired and family makeup and, you know, what kind of learning environment we were in. But a lot of it is societal pressure. And so I felt Mm -hmm. so much pressure to have it all figured out. But had I not, you know, had that job working as a dispatcher, like, I was so glad that I did that, even though it wasn't what I ultimately wanted to do. And mm-hmm. and I've had any number of jobs that have been like, no, that's not what I want to do long term. But they all kind of launched me to like, okay, I liked this about that. And I like that about that. And just trying to figure it out. And so there's all that pressure to figure it out. But like, also, I, I don't believe in wasted time. Yeah, I wasted a lot of time. I don't know, like, I guess one of my, one of my like, dad's sayings is you know don't let college interfere with your education mm-hmm. this is my dad greg who became my dad when i was 13 i believe so this is after my seven year gap of no father and that was something he always like kind of pounded into me but it also kind of invibed this party lifestyle <laughs> <laughs> i'm so. just picturing like night at the rocks oh <laughs> absolutely every night <laughs> i started not caring about like education and the choices I made probably about the time I was 14 Mm -hmm. which is when I had a lot of firsts back to the bleach back to the bleach yeah I might have actually been 12 or 13 the first time I bleached my hair but (laughs) that was the oldest picture I could find that my Mm -hmm. my mom gave me this like thing like this manila folder of pictures from like first grade through 12th grade okay 
that's that's where I found my bleached hair photo. But yeah, 14 was like a, a year of my life where I had a lot of firsts that mm-hmm. I guess statistically now a lot of this is a lot of a lot of 14 year olds have the same first that I have. Mm-hmm. But in the culture in which I grew up in, if people knew those experiences, such as I lost my virginity at 14. <laughs> okay, I want to say I want to say something about that. Yeah. I hate the term lost virginity. Oh, okay. Because and let me just tell you I want to know why. First of all, virginity is a really interesting concept. It is. Especially growing up within cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. And I think so much weight is placed on that. And it all comes back to the purity movement, which we could go on and on about. Oh, we could go um, on for days. But I don't like the idea of saying I lost my virginity because, what is it, a shoe? Like, I lost my shoe and I can't find it. Oh, yeah. Like, so I, I like- have consciously... Like Uh. switch to saying when I had sex for the first time. Mm. Now, when we're talking about trauma or issues of abuse, that's completely different. Mm. And but I don't think that in instances of trauma or abuse, people would refer to it as I lost my virginity. Like, no, you had an injustice done against you. So I just that's just my little thing of I hate like the virginity concept and I think all of Christian cultural Christianity's concepts around sexuality of like what is sex and well I didn't have actual sex sex so I'm (laughs) still a virgin so I can still hold on to it and then I didn't lose it like Uh all of that bullshit oh man don't even yeah so since we're on the topic (laughs) Kate Kate actually so I asked Kate before I'm like what do you think I should talk to Sarah about she said sex mm-hmm. <laughs> i knew it would come up it, it's gonna it had to mm-hmm. it was inevitable well as a product of the purity culture movement yeah, we as we 86ers were in we that. 86ers yeah but also as somebody who wants to be a sex therapist yeah at and some you want to be a sex therapist it's yeah. something that i am very intentional about talking about specifically within christian environments because it's such a taboo topic it is and you revealed to me how i still carried something that wasn't the uh, really the right way to express it because saying i lost my virginity has always been an uncomfortable thing to me mm-hmm. because it does almost imply a negation of my choice to do it. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I absolutely chose to do it. Yeah. And but then even that choice, as we mentioned earlier, was a choice that I had made that actually I didn't actually see the uh, repercussions across multiple relationships, not just with the girl who I chose to have sex with for mm-hmm. the first time. But the dynamic shifted even within my friend group because mm-hmm. as far as I know, I was the only one of my friends to do it that young. There might have been one or two others, but I never fully understood if they were telling the truth. Right, of course. And so, but again, that is another thing that was a product of growing up in the culture and the very Christian bubble of Nampa, Idaho that I grew <laughs> up in. Yeah. Where it was just normal conversations for me growing up were, are you... Calvinist or Arminianist? Are you Methodist, Baptist, Nazarene? Um, I went to this small non-denominational school that very much tried to uh, play the fiddle for everybody. Mm-hmm. They were just like, "Oh, can't have school dances because these people don't like it." Instead of like bringing people and celebrating their differences, it was we need to reject the differences and try to unify. And that was what my Christian school did as well. Yeah, and that is why I. I am uncomfortable. Like we've talked about sending our kids to Christian schools, but that mm-hmm. is like 
a thing that makes me very resistant to want to send them there. Mm -hmm. I had a realization when I was probably 23 that my school taught me what to think, didn't teach me how to think. Mm -hmm. And then I have also, there was another Christian school in my town that I discovered has like a recovery forum on like a website that they go to and like discuss the issues that they had going to that school and how it like ruined their lives. Wow. <laughs> yeah. I my mean... school, I don't think was to that extreme. I could see how this other school would have been. Mm -hmm. And again, it also just gets into when you have so many like Christian bubbles within a massive Christian bubble, those, those conversations just get so the Bible told you this. And so you have to literally believe it. And now we have to discuss it between our different theologies. And one of us is right. This again, I'm going to jump forward a few years into religious studies. Yep. We'll get back to some other stuff. I'm sorry if I'm going on this tangent. Oh, you. This is how I have conversations. We're getting. Yeah, we're getting. Yeah. We're getting. We'll get back to sex. Okay. That's what we're talking about. It always comes back to it eventually. Eventually. So I'm not worried yes. about it. I had. I like something that I, I never would have known because where I grew up was very much Protestant Christianity. There's a couple. There's there was Catholic churches, and I think there was Greek Orthodox, but they weren't huge. But it was just like you know. This is where Protestantism landed. And then also where I grew up is the highest per capita percentage of Mormons. Mm -hmm. I think when I lived there is 40% per capita, which is much higher than the state of Utah, at, at least at the time. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if those stats hold up today. Mm -hmm. I, I honestly wouldn't be surprised if they still did. Yeah, just like having so many different voices in Christianity kind of has honestly, it drove me out of the Shire. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I, ha I was I was given the ring <laughs> mm -hmm. and I left. So anyways, yeah, I was back in college. That's where I was. So yeah, I'd, I would not have understood this until I was much older because where I grew up, there was only one Bible and you read either like uh, if you went to a Baptist church, you read King James. And if mm -hmm. you went to the Nazarene church, it was mostly NIV. And like mm -hmm. every church had like their version of the Bible, but they were all the same version of the Bible, just translated slightly differently. I never really understood until much later in life that the Catholics, Greek Orthodox have their own mm -hmm. setup for the Bible. And then when you look at the Old Testament, which is the Tanakh, the Torah, that is arranged very different than how the three sects of Christianity, I should say the three main sects of Christianity divide up their Bibles. The question that I got like bothered with was like, okay, if this is truly the word of God, why are there different versions of it? And all four of these different people are saying, no, mine's, I mean, I will give all credit to the Jews because they had it first. Mm -hmm. Which one's more holy? You know, which one is more the word of God? Because we've cut it up and mm -hmm. put it back together the way we want it. And I learned to start asking the question of on whose authority is this like a system in which I should believe? And who interpreted these things? Yes. And there's many words in the Bible that I don't agree with the way that they are translated. And it completely changes the context in mm -hmm. which we are told its value. Mm -hmm. And then we, I think we also hold it in a much different a different weight of value than it was originally meant to be. Oh yeah, I feel like so many Christians worship the Bible more than they worship God. Oh yeah. And how my personal take on it is all of those texts were interpreted and translated by humans. Yes. There, it is impossible to write something and remain entirely objective because mm -hmm. who we are, our identity, 
our interactions, how we were brought up, that flows into everything that we do, how we yeah. interpret the world. And that comes out in how we interact with the world around mm -hmm. us. When I think about the Bible, as somebody who is a follower of Jesus, do mm -hmm. read the Bible and mm -hmm. subscribe to the Bible. But I also see a lot of Christianity, cultural Christianity, air quotes, mm -hmm. um, being so divided by those things. And mm -hmm. my big thing and my big beef with a lot of Christians is the inability to say, I don't know, mm -hmm. or the discomfort of the gray. There's way more gray mm -hmm. in following a God who is all powerful, mysterious, that we can't wrap our brains around, uh -huh. nor are we supposed to. So yeah. anytime I'm in the presence of somebody who says, no, this is what it says and this is exactly what it means, mm -hmm. I know that they're not somebody who I can learn a lot from yeah. because they are so married and so rigid to their... They're closed-fisted, they're white Absolutely. Yes. If there is anything I know about God or about being in the presence of God, it is a numinous experience. Ding. <laughs> <laughs> it is something that cannot oftentimes be put into words. Mm -hmm. We That's why I love music. Music can often give a body like lyrics, melody to an experience and, mm -hmm. and bring it to life in a way that we can relate to. But even music and all of its entirety and how that can you know, bring the world together, mm -hmm. that's incredible. That doesn't capture the mystery of God. Yeah. Hey friends, Stuart here. Mark and I are loving the process of making this podcast and really appreciate the feedback we've been getting. Podcasting is quite a bit of work though. This episode alone took around 12 hours and over 3,000 edits to get finished. But every time we do it, we learn a lot and we're able to cut those numbers down. Currently, we're doing all of this as well as paying for our software and equipment via donations from our community. If you like what you hear and want more, like possibly adding good quality video to these interviews, or just a few extra dollars lying around you just can't find a home for, we are now on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash looming in the numinous. That's L-U-M-I-N-G, looming. As our season continues, we plan to include merch and special treats for our patrons. So look forward to that. Well, I will, I will, I will say this in terms of music. Like I love music. My taste in music has very much cultivated over time, and I still love the punk rock back in the original bleached hair days. Absolutely. I was punk rock skater boy. Okay, but I just yeah. have to ask. Yeah. What was your brand of skate shoe? Uh, I mostly wore DVS. Okay, I was yeah. an Etnies girl. I wore. I did have Etnies. I wore a lot of S as well because mm -hmm. I really liked Eric Costin. Mm -hmm. And I was actually telling Kate this today, but I took a two-year break from playing basketball. I stopped. I didn't play in sixth or seventh grade, and then I came back in eighth grade. But I was very much skater mentality, and I was mm -hmm. like, I'm going to prove that on the court because I had the coach of the, the team like coming after me, like. Mm -hmm. This this is another this is also like why I hate like kind of rejected team sports. I like I love basketball, but I went to a small private white Christian school, very much only diverse in people's uh, denominations. <laughs> and I was like I said earlier, I was 
you know, always about second best at mm-hmm. everything. I could play with the rest of the boys and do just fine. But I remember in eighth grade, right after football ended for me, and then there was the transition to basketball, the high school football coach came to me and said, very excited for you to be a starter on varsity next year. Mm. And I was like, I don't want to be on varsity football as a freshman. Like I, everything I do is like a friend passion thing. Like Mm -hmm. I want to play with my friends, but I was getting pressured into something greater. It's why I quit playing baseball. I was playing with guys who were two to three years older than me. Again, it was just like, it was a pressure thing as a, as a young kid who also didn't have a father at the time, somebody to kind of boost my ego a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I just quit baseball because I couldn't handle the pressure of like being somebody who was thought of as, you know, this prodigy. And I, I think that, that that might be a little excessive to say in my case. I also think a lot of that is like built into how I thought maybe people saw me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so eighth grade basketball, when I came, when I made my triumphant return, I got Eric Costin threes because they look a lot like basketball shoes. Oh, okay. And so I was going to carry skater market into playing basketball. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We got on the skate shoes. Music. 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 I was going to make my point on music. Yeah. I cannot describe the way I feel when I am listening to the Beach Boys or the Beatles or uh, Robert Johnson. The way that that music like stirs within like my inner being and like, like my innermost self, mm-hmm. I can't put into words. Like I can sing along with the songs and I could learn them on guitar, but especially the first listen of those those songs, there's so many ties to them. I'm very much tied to the Beach Boys because of my dad, John Dillon, who died when I was five. He used to drive me around in his 36 Ford and we would listen to the Beach Boys and it was awesome. And then the Beatles, you know, have always, their, their like revolution of the 60s <laughs> I think is still going forward. Oh yeah. And they just were so much a part of different aspects of my growing up. Uh, me and my best friend, like loved the Beatles, like not just me and my best friend, but like our group, we listen to the Beatles quite frequently. My dad, Greg, who is my current dad, he was a radio DJ, like loved the Beatles, has a lot of Beatles memorabilia. So I'm very much attached to it in that way. I recently found out my mom used to sneak away growing up in high school from the farm to find Beatles on the radio. Like, mm-hmm. uh, so I, I learned my mom has a rebellious side. Oh, <laughs> yeah, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, I cannot put to words how that those things make me feel, and that's what a numinous experience is. Yeah. Is I I can also let's get into this. Okay, Eurovision. <laughs> yes. I personally believe, and I've told you this before, that Eurovision is the movie that 2020 needs. Yeah. It is not the uh, traditional late Will Ferrell movies. Mm-hmm. It's not as uh, over the top, I don't, I don't know, frat boy humor, I guess. Mm-hmm. But it's like a real, like genuine movie. It's very heartfelt, very thought out. But I had a lot of numinous experiences in it because there's a lot of music, but I also mm-hmm. really love movies and that movie was really well done. And very well represented. Very well represented. So yeah, there's so much that you can dive into and have a numinous experience that you can't describe. But like, I could review the movie and tell mm-hmm. you like my thoughts and how good it was. But mm-hmm. really, putting putting into words your experience of feeling something the first time, I find very hard. I mean, if we're gonna words. talk numinous, mm-hmm. I guess the phrase you just have to see it. 
Mm-hmm. That would be something that would be numinous, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know how to articulate this, but you just have to see it. Yeah. You just have to see it, people. Oh my gosh, you do. <laughs> you really do. Yeah. I cried at the song along. Oh, so yeah. dry every time. It's so good. We've gone down some rabbit holes. We have definitely gone down some rabbit holes. I was talking about music, then you went there. We were talking about sex. We were talking about cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. That is the the field I have been, been retilling for the last, I'd say, five, six years. Mm-hmm. I feel much freer as a Christian, but I also mm-hmm. struggle to tell people I'm a Christian. You mentioned something earlier about like feeling like you you were playing parts in different areas mm-hmm. of your life. And I think for me, that happened when I switched to religious studies mm-hmm. at, at Oregon State. This was a time in my life where I was really facing the question of like, am I a religious person? And I learned so much about like, you know, what, what being a religious person means, what being an irreligious person or a non-religious person. Like I, I realized that there's just these differences, but th- those, those terms in themselves do not negate you from being able to be a, an affiliate of a, mm-hmm. of, of a religion. And so there's a lot of Christians out there who are actually irreligious Christians and they don't even know it. They just assume that they are religious Christians because they are part of that collective. Mm-hmm. Like an irreligious Christian would be somebody. I like. I. I think we would be irreligious Christians. That's what I. I. Was I, 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 I say it's. I. I would say it's pretty close to being a gray Christian living in the gray. Yeah. But a lot of those people are still hiding in the dark with the areas in which they are hiding. Mm-hmm. They're frolicking in the gray. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it is. It's really hard to let go of, right? And mm-hmm. I think that that's why so many people stay there is because the the benefit of black and white thinking is there's a clear right and a clear wrong, mm-hmm. at least based off of. The interpretation of yeah. Bible or interpretation of doctrine or interpretation of you know, culture or location. And all of those things impact. Honestly, I mean, the longer I've followed Jesus and pursued a relationship with the Lord, I feel like I'm the only thing I'm more confident in is the increasing mystery of God. Oh, yeah. And it's like the whole more I know, the more I don't know situation. Mm -hmm. And so the more I have followed after God, I feel the more I have had to let go of my understanding of this is this and that is that. And I'm so grateful for it because really it helped me to shed a lot of identities Mm -hmm. that weren't helpful to me. And I think really got in the way of people even wanting to to be around me or to like the whole point of living a certain faith or is it supposed to be attractive to other people right Mm -hmm. but i think so much of things that have been done in the name of jesus by christians are so incredibly off-putting to the very world that we are supposed to be living attractively in yeah And I think so often it comes with like the worship of biblical text. I think it comes Mm -hmm. from the worship of that black and white thinking and morals and And doctrine and Mm -hmm. all of that and and can become very political as well. Mm -hmm. That, yes, I am losing my sense of security by saying I don't know, but what comes out of it 
is that I'm actually relatable to people mm-hmm. because I'm not so married to these beliefs and these concepts. I'm willing to am able to have a conversation with somebody and love hearing from people who have other beliefs. Well, and the other thing too that I think is very much overlooked by Christians in Christianity is that like Christianity is not about all of these doctrines and theologies that we have created. The point of Christianity is that you can look to Jesus despite all of your flaws and strive to be a better person because of the example set by him, which is fully told in story form. You know, we do know historically that Jesus was a real man. Mm -hmm. This is where like, I guess I can relate with a lot of agnostics or atheists who also do believe he was a real man like believe in the example that he set and so they do follow his teachings in that way but uh then there becomes that dichotomy between the god man Mm -hmm. yeah and that's that's a concept for people who aren't christians hard to understand and i guess for me jesus the god man i never experienced him as a man but i do experience him as god my whole story of ywam is totally like my getting to know jesus Mm. and seeing how he works and seeing how the holy spirit works but ywam is also like a big place of like hurt for Mm me ywam was just another church to me and i like as long as you've known me you've always known that i struggle with church Mm -hmm. i've always struggled with church because uh churches to me have just become little boxes with a bunch of definitions inside and YWAM was a little bit different in just the sense that it is a very diverse missionary group. Like every base is very different. To me, it is a very much more real form of Christianity in some ways because of that amount of diversity that's not challenged but converse. But my leaving YWAM when I felt like God was pulling me away from it and the people who spoke into my life and mentored me were telling me that like God told them I was making the wrong choice. And for me, it's like, what is what is it your business to come in between my relationship with God? Mm-hmm. Like, why would God be telling me one thing, but you another? And you seem a lot more angry about this decision than I mm-hmm. do. That's what church in general, like, became to me. They have become a place like my school. So here's another, here's another scar from my school growing up and churches is, they churches just tell me but they tell me what to believe Mm -hmm. about god and what to believe about jesus but not necessarily how to go about that relationship on my own Mm -hmm. but churches do offer those community aspects Mm -hmm. in small in small groups and stuff but you can find a real connection with people which is how we met which is how we met Mm -hmm. that is a big wound for me in christianity is just because i got very tired of like everything that i believed about god being debatable by somebody else just because they didn't see it that way Mm -hmm. and they felt it was their business to tell me that i was wrong when i switched to religious studies i was living you know here in corvallis and i had a group of what i i would just say my non-christian group and my christian group that's not the entire way to describe all of these people but i basically had a group of christians who basically told me i wasn't very christian Mm -hmm. i was very non-religious and then i had a bunch of like my non-christian friends anti-religious friends telling me that i was the most like christian religious person that they knew (laughs) Mm -hmm. and that was a lot you know that's two different aspects of my life and a place that like i didn't grow up here Mm -hmm. like i i somewhat understand the culture here it just it set a dichotomy within me 
that actually helped me alleviate the pain of even believing in dichotomies. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I believe that dichotomies are, again, another like man-made constructed thing. Like mm -hmm. We want to define good and evil and point out what aspects of living life, what paths those will lead us towards. Well, it, it's all so that we can wrap our minds around it, right? Mm-hmm. So it's way easier to think either or than both and. I actually had a, a an old church I went to had a sermon series called that because they mm. wanted to get out of the either or. That is something that I do a lot with clients. It's it's called dialectic, right? Yeah. So it's the dialectic of when I'm working with somebody, I'm validating your experience. It makes total sense that you're feeling this way mm -hmm. and that you're acting this way as a result of your life experiences or pain and this is also not working for you and mm -hmm. it is getting in the way of your growth and development and moving forward. So it's acknowledging that both are true. And by mm -hmm. acknowledging that both are true, it actually creates more of a unity and says like, okay, both of these parts play a reason. Mm -hmm. And that like results in increased integration and more holistic functioning. Yeah. So it's saying, yeah, absolutely. Your painful life experiences it makes sense that you interpret the world that way, that you act this way in relationships and you're not happy mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's not working. So by, you know, kind of meeting in the middle that way, it's really, I mean, the more I grow as a person and all my different facets of humanity, mm. the more I just, it's so funny that like younger Sarah was so clean and hated an A minus because it wasn't crisp enough and so goal oriented and now i just there's so much beauty in the messiness of it mm. that it is totally okay that we're a hot mess but also pursuing health and healing and mm -hmm. wholeness yeah um, i haven't met somebody who doesn't relate to that and if they don't relate to that then their world will fall apart mm. in the future interesting i want to get back into your future oh okay you want to be a sex therapist mm -hmm. why like where okay so let's 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 get back to this i'm going to say this correctly you are a licensed family and marriage therapist licensed marriage marriage and family therapist so i got the okay i got it backwards again like just think like first comes love then comes marriage oh. then comes the baby and the baby carriage yes like marriage first then family yeah in that very traditional Mm -hmm. cultural christianity sense yeah so that is not and that's another thing mm -hmm. <laughs> that i also want to say is in the church marriage is so idolized oh absolutely i so i'm 33 yes in a week and a half i will be 34 Woo. uh if you had asked me when I was younger, if I would be 34 and single, I would have been like, Ugh, no, I yeah. would have thought it was appalling. I literally had somebody asked me uh, when I was, I think it was 29 or 30, a young Christian girl, bless her heart, ask me if it bothered me that I was my age and still single. And I told her, I said, you know, if you had asked me that when I was younger, if you had told me when I was younger that that would be the case, I would have been bothered. But let mm. me tell you this. We worship marriage as if it's this end-all, be-all. We think oh, yeah. it's the perfect antidote to loneliness. We think it's the answer to our identity. And we are wired for connection and for a relationship. Oh, absolutely. 
I have got to learn, like I've gotten to learn just the beauty of so many different things as an individual person. And I told her that I was so grateful that I'm not married because I've lived my life. Life doesn't start once you get married. My, I have, I could die tomorrow and I'm not trying to be morbid here. Mm-hmm. I could die tomorrow and I would be very content with the life that I have led. Mm-hmm. I've gotten to travel. I got my education. I am launching a new practice. I'm super excited about that. I have incredible relationships. I moved from the city that I grew up in to a totally new city all by myself out of state. And I've gotten to meet incredible people. I've had to learn really hard lessons that mm-hmm. have defined me and healed me and launched me. And I'm so grateful for that. And when the time comes that I do still want to be married, I yeah. do hope that I get to do that. But when that time comes, I won't have any unanswered, unexplored areas. You know, yeah. I... I'm not waiting until I have this other person or nor am I looking for my completion in somebody else because I'm searching for that healing and that wholeness within myself, mm. within the context of incredible gratifying relationships that I have now, friendships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have some of the most amazing friends both back home and here. My friends' husbands are the best. They're all people who love me and care about me and who I hang out with without my friends and mm-hmm. it's great. You know, and and there are just so many things that I've gotten to learn outside of marriage that when that time comes, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. You know, I had friends who got married very young and they would be very jealous of the adventures I'd be going on because they couldn't do that because they had yeah. young children. Yeah, that's what I that's what I told last guest, Rob. Yeah. I was like, man, sometimes I just look at what you're doing. Like, I wish I could be doing that, but like I've made my choice and I'm very happy with my choice. But yeah. There's still always going to be that lingering because, like, Kate and I talk about it a lot too. It's just like it would just be so nice to just be able to get away. Like Kate said, if she didn't have this life last night, mm-hmm. you know, she wouldn't wake up until one, and she would order a pizza as soon as she woke up and mm-hmm. just stay in bed all day and eat that pizza. And she drink water with mint in it. And drink water with mint. In it. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny. And that's not to say that my life is better or that your life is better. Right. But. It is to say that we get this unique opportunity to figure out that, you know, yes, who we are in relationship is important and it's also not everything. Mm -hmm. Because if you ask a number of people who are married, they are still lonely. Yeah. Or people who have children, they are still. But this is also, this is all, this whole conversation though goes back to um, just the ideology of marriage in the church and mm-hmm. cultural Christianity. Mm-hmm. From what you're saying, it is something that you have let go of, mm-hmm. but it was also something like for me saying I lost my virginity, mm-hmm. something that you had to like have that glass shattering or light bulb moment of realization. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so, you know, do I still want to get married? Absolutely. The fact that it hasn't happened yet, like I know so much more about myself. I, If 22 year old Sarah had gotten married, I don't know that I would still be this person. It might have mm-hmm. limited the things that I was exposed to, my education. I don't know. And I love who I am right now. And so I'm constantly growing and changing. And, and you know, my Angelo says, and I'm going to botch this, but it's essentially like you do things until you know better and then you know better. Like, yeah. and then you do better. 
And that's kind of been so much of my life. Like I've, I've done what I thought was right. And then I come to this point of like, I don't know that that feels right anymore. And then I let it go and then I move on. Same with like education and exposure to things like privilege and all of that, that it's like, oh my gosh, I didn't even realize all of this privilege that I have. But now that I know, I'm choosing to do better. Yeah. Um, so the reason why I want to go into sex therapy is because growing up in the church, there's so much shame around sexuality. Mm-hmm. We grew up in a time where there was the purity movement mm-hmm. that that it was... Basically, people would pledge their sexual purity mm-hmm. to God and then vowed as much like a marriage ceremony and often had a ring to represent it mm-hmm. to remain pure until they get married. That's a really tough thing because that mm-hmm. is creating this idea that sex is, one, it, it glorifies sex in a yeah. lot of ways. And don't get me wrong, sex is a beautiful, wonderful thing. Uh-huh. And it's awesome. Yeah, but it also puts it on this crazy pedestal. Mm -hmm. And again, like marriage teaches young Christian kids that that's the only thing to aspire to. And so there are all these red lights, red lights, red lights, and then it's not talked about freely. And then people struggle with porn or they Mm -hmm. masturbate and think that they're dirty or they're curious about their sexuality but don't have anywhere to turn to. I also think, though, too, that that's not just a church thing. You know, our generation is the generation that was studied to figure out when the average child is first exposed to sex, which mm-hmm. is about eight years old. Um, and by that, I also mean more so exposed to, like, it's the first time, like, an eight-year-old boy sees a naked woman mm-hmm. in, like, in our day, a Playboy or a penthouse. But mm-hmm. today, it's just the touch of a finger. Mm-hmm. Because of that aspect of the shame, like there's so much like it always makes me think of in Monty Python and the Holy Grail and there's the guys doing the chant and then just hitting themselves with wood. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, that was like a real thing in the Middle Ages. People would have their penance, which often had like lashings. But for modern Christianity, especially of like the from the moral right of the 80s, which really influenced. That's what I was getting at to the moral right of the 80s, mm-hmm. I think, destroyed Christianity in America. My a lot of my family would disagree with me mm-hmm. on this, but um, most of my family, and I have to kind of say this apologetically, they're still stuck in the Shire of Idaho. Yeah. You know, hobbits don't leave their home. They enjoy their pipe weed and their ales. And mm-hmm. I felt like that's why I relate to Frodo so much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but because of the shame, it's it's shame now. Like mm-hmm. it became shame. Like let people feel their guilt so they won't want to do it again. But that's not how that works. Mm-hmm. You shame people, they're going to feel like this is just who I am. And exactly. I'm going to get trapped in pornography. Yeah. And I don't have anywhere to safely tell people I struggle with it because I don't want to get it out to the world that I struggle mm-hmm. with it because I'll get shamed. Mm-hmm. It's a vicious cycle that just continues to happen with within the church as far as I know. I'm not saying that all churches are that way today, but I would, like, the churches I grew up around, it was very much that way. I mean, especially the work that I do working with survivors of trauma, you know, if you grew up in a religious environment and you're given the message that if you do this thing, then you're dirty and it's shameful and something was done to you, what does that tell about you? 
Mm-hmm. So you're dirty and you're shameful, but it was for something that you didn't choose to do that was done to you. And that's yeah. a huge part of trauma. Oh, yeah. But in, in doing a lot of couples work and family work and just having open conversations with people and walking with students through things, I just, it kind of goes back to the vulnerability thing. It's like I consciously talk about suicide very often in my practice and mm-hmm. I do suicide trainings because. That is something that there's so much stigma around and it doesn't get talked about. And I feel like that's what sex is in the church that is not talked about freely. I have done talks about sexuality with young Christians and it was very obvious that these 19, 20 year olds had never talked openly about sex. So these kids go into these situations and they're like, oh, sex is this really great thing. I can't wait to do it. And then it's built up. And then they get to it. And for a lot of young Christian women, they have sexual dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And so uh, there are different, uh, it, it was formerly called vaginismus, where a woman would have sex. And it's essentially a psychosomatic issue where it could be because of trauma or because of messages about sexuality that physiologically she's not able to enjoy sex. Mm-hmm. Um, it's painful. That happens quite a bit. Until, and until you address the messages around sexuality and where those shameful, hurtful messages come from and why it feels dirty and wrong, you won't be able to enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And so I just, part of it is just, I just want to like, sex is a beautiful part of our humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think it just angers me so much that we were given this message that it's this dirty, dirty thing. Mm. It's either a dirty, dirty thing or it's a glorified thing. And there was no in between. Well, and it's very much an ultimate connection between two people. Absolutely. You know, like it is a, yeah, it is just like a physical, spiritual and mental connection. Mm -hmm. And it is a beautiful thing. And I remember the purity movement was a nightmare. <laughs> so as, as we've discussed, I had sex for the first time at 14. And by the time that I was getting into the church age where they were starting to have those tech, those sex talks, which is way too late, mm-hmm. uh, sex talks should begin as soon as they can. But a lot of churches are like, okay, and high schools do this too. It's like, okay, now they're in high school. And uh, they, they're going through those body transitions. So now's the time to talk to them about it. Which, can I just give a quick plug for any parents out there, anybody who's in relationship with children, you have a developing conversation about sex. You have mm-hmm. age-appropriate conversations and you continue the dialogue. So you start when they're young enough and you start to explain things also from a trauma background. Please, parents, refer to your children's genitalia as their biological names. Penis and vagina. Penis and vagina. Yes. Part of the reason why is to help protect them against uh, any sexual trauma. So that they also, and if they get into a, yeah, into a debacle with Mm -hmm. a traumatic person, Mm -hmm. they know what to say. Yes anatomically yes but it it is it's part of a a developing conversation do you have the whole talk with Cece at three years old no but do you talk to her you begin the discussion about it Mm -hmm. and the more you begin the discussion the less shame she feels about it because you want to make sure that you guys are the ones providing that information Eli and Cece do not snicker at the words penis and Mm -hmm. vagina they are very comfortable using those words and that is all because of Kate 
And I, that is honestly, I, I so appreciate that about her. Mm. It's anytime parents go there with their kids, I'm like, oh, thank goodness. Yeah. I learned so much about like how to teach my kids through Kate because yeah. she does it so well. And I'm just like, sometimes I'm like, I'm lost. Like I need to throw in the towel. Can you please sub in? You know, this tag team, this one. Mm-hmm. But she's also pushed me a lot into like, really trying to communicate what I'm trying to get them to yeah. understand and doing it in a simplistic way, which is very hard for me. Absolutely. <laughs> well, it's especially when we didn't grow up with the freedom to talk about such mm-hmm. things, right? Definitely with within the Christian context, because that's a context that I grew up in. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't want people to feel shameful about something that's inherent to their humanity that is a beautiful thing. Yeah. And I think sex is just so interesting. Yeah. It's fascinating understanding it biologically, under like positions and how we're wired and like the intricacy of our sexual organs and I mean, it is fascinating. It to is me. fascinating. Yes, and yeah. I love talking about it. I love helping people if they're having issues with it, if they're not enjoying it. And I think just in general, I love being the kind of person who can talk about hard things with people. So what I'm hearing is that this is the area of the numinous in which you have been fascinated with to explore. And the reason I say that is because with the numinous, as I've discussed in the past podcast, is that there's an irrational and irrational side to it. The rational side is what we're able to like write down. We can study sex. Studies on sex have been going on for centuries, but um, definitely centuries. But I would say, wasn't it? There's the masters, masters of sex. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, masters and Johnson, and they had a whole sex institute. It's yeah, super cool. Yeah, and there's just so much you can learn about it. But there's still, no matter how much you can teach yourself about mm-hmm. sex, there there's still more that you as not Dr. Sarah, but, you know, <laughs> but maybe someday. Maybe someday. Could happen. There's something about it that is driving you to want to keep learning more, mm-hmm. but in order for you to be able to help people. Mm-hmm. And that is also where like your faiths and beliefs come out mm-hmm. is through, I'm just going to throw this out there, but I'm guessing you probably learn a lot about yourself and your relationship with God through a lot of what you study and, oh, and the sure. work that you do. Yes, very much so. Yeah, because if, if you didn't, then why are you doing it? Yeah. Abs- well, and I mean, even just understanding the concept of Imago Dei, mm-hmm. right? We're mm-hmm. created in the image of God. We are reflections of God. You know who changed my entire views on the image of God? Who? Francis Schaeffer. Who's that? He's another one of those. Uh, I mean, I first learned about Francis Schaeffer through YWAM. To me, he's one of those people who was outside the box mm-hmm. for my growing up. I don't like, he just was not anybody I ever recall being told about. Mm-hmm. He is really my first introduction to what I, what I would, what I would call great Christianity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he has, like he talks about being, like he does talk about like, you know, the numinous experience of listening to the Beatles and just like seeing uh, the creativity of man displaying the creativity of God yeah. through like art and music. And he gets into all of that stuff, but he, what he drilled into me is that if we are all truly created in the image of God, if we all are the Imago Dei, then that means we really do carry a piece of God, and therefore we, we all deserve to be treated as such people, mm-hmm. that we are images of God, we are representations of God, and it very much falls into 
you know, the golden rule that you find across all religions. It's not just in Christianity. Right. For Jews and Christians, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Christianity has love your neighbors yourself. It is implied in Judaism, but very directly said in the New Testament. So what we know about religion historically, 6,000 years ago, pretty much every religion has its like founding, like its pseudo genesis, like mm. its beginnings, its origins. Uh, most religions have developed out of this movement that started 6,000 years ago. Around the time of like Jesus and like a few, probably through the, like really the founding of Islam, I, I would guess. And back to like around like Buddhism and Confucianism, it's like a, like a four to 600 year period where all these people in different parts of the world who were not as well connected as we are today, which is very hard for us to understand, mm-hmm. all had pretty much the same revel- revelation of the golden rule mm-hmm. at just different points of human history at different parts of the world where there was massive cultural hubs of people all feeling this imago day mm-hmm. in different ways seeing it displayed in different ways through how their culture was able to develop you know their national religions or even if they aren't national just their cultural religions mm-hmm. and that's something that a lot of people are who are so high strung and so white knuckled on their own religion can't get over. Mm-hmm. Like that we are a, far more alike than we yes, are. Yes, here, here. This is one of my biggest issues that I feel like the was like the biggest lie Christianity ever told me is that like they were like the religion. I don't believe Christianity is the religion. Mm-hmm. For a lot of Christians who are going to listen to this, that's probably a uncomfortable thing to hear from me. But I just don't see it. Uh, all religions are on the same playing field. They're all still trying to define the numinous God that we all worship in some way. And I'll get into this more as this podcast goes on for people. But I just feel like there's a lot of like eye-opening things people don't understand about their own faith. And for those of you who this is bothering, I encourage you to put your pitchforks away <laughs> and just listen with an opening ear. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think, you know, it just kind of goes with what we're talking about. I, I keep saying this, it, it keeps coming up, but holding things with an open hand. Mm-hmm. And even just in our conversation, we're talking about a white knuckle versus an open hand. Mm-hmm. And I have gotten way more out of life when I'm willing to be wrong and mm-hmm. willing to learn and to say, I don't know, than I have out of putting my foot down and saying, this is the right way. Yeah. A mentor of mine who passed away, sadly, a few years ago, his answer to the question of like, what is the gospel? And in this sense, it would have been more related to like, what is truth? But Mm -hmm. this is very much a Christian setting. So it was the gospel. Uh, He tells the story of he had three kids and the the younger two were closer. I think the middle and oldest were like three or four years apart, but then the younger two were like a year and a half to two years apart. And so he tells the story of his two younger ones and he took them to the beach. And the older one, which was a brother, and then his little sister, was very, very competitive. Honestly, probably not too much unlike my children. Mm-hmm. With Eli is very, very competitive, but you know, you will see Cece just doing her own thing, coloring. She's just kinda like go with the flow. So yeah, it's like he's telling the story of these two kids and he takes them to the beach and the older brother wants to have a sand holding contest with his little sister to see who can hold the most sand in their hand. Hmm. So the boy scoops it up and holds on to it for dear life. He gets all the sand he can in his hand and just holds on to it for dear life. I realize people can't see me doing this. (laughs) But anyways, he's 
yeah, so he picks up the sand, squeezes it all he can. The daughter lifts it up and just lets it sit. And then the dad says, all right, kids, I got two buckets. Put your sand in the buckets and I will decipher who has mm-hmm. the most sand. The daughter won because she just scooped it up. And the son's like, no, 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 let's do it again. So he did it again. Same thing. Same result. He white knuckled the sand. I guess I, I might need to describe this image for people. I hope you're tracking. But like what happens to sand when you squeeze it in your hand? Through. It finds the cracks and falls through. What happens to the sand if you just let it sit in your hand? It just sits in your it hand. It just sits in your hand. Yeah. And from that, you can study so much of that pile of sand in your hand and garner mm-hmm. so much knowledge from it. But if you're squeezing it, you're just holding on to something that's not really there. Absolutely. I, As I was, as we were talking about sex and the purity movement, mm-hmm. I, I can never... I can never talk about sex in the purity movement without telling this story about my grandma. Marion is a tough broad. Let yeah. me just tell you. Yes, she is. Um, I had a purity ring. That is right. I did. Um, I asked for it for my high school graduation. Which is pretty traditional. <laughs> well, what's so funny is I had a family friend who was like, huh, the funny thing is most people need that before high school. Yeah. <laughs> Not me, late bloomer. Which also I attribute a lot to the fear around sexuality and um, the whole, and I know he's apologized over this, but the I kiss dating goodbye shit. Oh my gosh. Like dating is a great thing. An opportunity to figure out who we are and what we want to spend time with another person to to learn more about ourselves to learn more about who we are in relationship and i had such a fear around it and i mean to be totally honest i still do Mm -hmm. like those things are hard to hard to get rid of yeah i so it, it shaped so much even to the point where guys that i like had such a crush on didn't pursue me because they thought like oh well she doesn't want to date in high school because i when I was on my high and mighty horse would say mm-hmm. like, well, it doesn't make sense to date in high school because I'm not ready for marriage. And the only point of dating is for marriage. Which goes back to the ideology of marriage in the church. Exactly. Yeah. But anyways, yes. So, ugh, and guys that I really liked, like I'm the queen of misconnections, but anyways, my, my dad's side of the family, they are what I call holiday Catholics. Like okay, they yeah. say that they're Catholic, but I mean, not they don't ever go to church they don't ever they use the bible when it's convenient for them and that's yes. mostly for when there's an argument or something like well doesn't the bible say it to honor your father and mother you know? that's like 90 percent of the houses in america that have a bible <laughs> on the shelf though that's pretty so. true anyways marion marion is a self-identified bitch um <laughs> <laughs> And uh, anyways, she saw my ring. She's like, oh, well, that's a pretty ring. And I'm like, well. And so I was bound and determined, like, I'm going to show them, you know. I am and pure. I'm so pure. And uh, she saw my ring and she's like, oh, that's pretty. And I was like, oh, thanks, Grandma. Well, actually, it's a ring that means, you know, I'm not going to have sex until I get married. And she was like, shit happens, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> so defiant at that moment because I was like I'm gonna show you on my wedding day in just a few years because I'm gonna get married when I'm 21 and a half right 
this is also this points out another thing for me too about going back to like the moral right of the 80s but something that was burned into specifically women i believe during that time was any admission of sex before marriage was just like that was just like an end game thing for a lot of like well like guys being able to like look at these women like oh you know it's the it's the woman who was getting the stones cast and jesus mm -hmm. drew the line or whatever well, and this grandma who says shit happens had yeah. three kids before marriage in the 50s and 60s. Huh. So she was right. I mean, she tells stories about when she was pregnant with my uncle Tony going to the doctor and them always trying to convince her to give him up for adoption because morally. And so, I mean, shit really did happen to yeah. her. And shit really happened for me, too. And needless to say, I don't wear the purity ring anymore. I'm going to make a bunch of Christians uncomfortable right oh, now. Please. But what if what if what Jesus wrote in the sand was shit happens? <laughs> <laughs> then my grandma would definitely be quoting scripture often. I remember being so steadfast and I'm going to show her and, you know, so morally superior. And I realized what she was doing at the time was something that I want to do for other people is to dispel that way that we build it up into this huge thing when yes it's a huge part of our humanity but it's not the only part mm -hmm. and it's not something that we need to worship it's mm -hmm. not something that we need to mark our lives by entirely and uh I'm so grateful for that. And she, she does. Shit happens is kind of her token phrase. And so it's I also the phrase from Forrest Gump. It's true. <laughs> <laughs> she said it before Forrest Gump. Yeah, um, I believe it. I got I got I got to quote her real quick. He, he goes, you just, you just stepped in a big pile of shit back there. And Forrest goes, it happens. Yeah. What shit? Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> Such a good movie. Yeah, so anyways, she uses that phrase often, and so I would go, well, Grandma, that's so inspirational. You should really needlepoint that. And so one year she did, and so that's why you see the cross-stitch shit happens hanging in my room. Well, I feel like I know Marion now. Oh, yeah. I, I feel like I have a connection with her. Yeah. Oh, yeah. She's she's a tough broad. That really, I, I look back on that, and I am grateful because... You know, I think that fear of sex, that fear of dating, because of how the church glorified it, because of how the purity movement made it to be this end-all, be-all thing, made me afraid of my own humanity and my own sexuality in a lot yeah. of ways. And I think it kept me from opportunities that I could have had relationships or I was, yeah. or even still how I'm afraid to put myself out there. Yeah. Uh, a phrase that I like use a lot with my good friend Chris uh, back when I first moved away from Taiwan and like him and I still communicate like mm -hmm. I love Chris and him and I are always looking forward to the day to be together and I, Chris you listen to this like I hope this is more proof that I'm, I'm serious I love Chris you know he was kind of like still fresh in his Christianity mm -hmm. um, and also like one of his best friends had died about the same time I was leaving Taiwan and so I, I was, all, so him and I like had a lot of talks, like trying to counsel him through that. And I'm not like a death therapist, but I, I could arguably say that for like the first 20, 25 years of my life, I probably went to a funeral for every other year of that mm -hmm. time span. And not every person, not every one of those funerals was like a direct, like strong connection relationship, but some form of an acquaintance that meant a lot to my mom or my brother or whoever mm -hmm. and 
and I always tell Kate too, like I, I, I feel very like, I know death is like a thing that happens and you, you, it's something that if you survive, uh, if you, you're surviving somebody you lost, you can't get over. Chris really struggled kind of like with a lot of stuff that we're talking about. Like he doesn't come from a Christian family. He's Taiwanese. There's like the main religions in Taiwan are like Buddhism and Taoism. Mm -hmm. And so that's his family background. That's his religious background. And the only thing I could ever encourage him to be was just be the person God created you to be. And nobody else can tell you who that person is because that person is between you and God. Mm -hmm. That is who you let allow yourself to define through your interactions, through prayer and just, just even like seeking out the people you believe God has blessed to have in your life. And so, yeah, like when you're talking back to just cultural Christianity and the way that we grew up in this purity movement and just the, all these different ideologies that stemmed from, you know, a lot of felt board theology. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Really, honestly, kept a lot of Christians from becoming the people that they were meant to be. Yeah. And a lot of people who you have mentioned, like a lot of people who got married at a young age. I think when I was in high school, the average age, I think specifically to my county of Idaho, the average age of marriage was for guys, I think 21 mm -hmm. and girls like 18 and a half. Mm -hmm. The national statistic has increasingly been going up, but in a lot of places like where I grew up, that stat has stayed the same. Last I checked, I think the average age was uh, women 32 and men 34. Mm. I bet that number's gone up, though, since I last saw it. Yeah, there's just so many, I guess, just these like weights, these yokes that are put on us as young mm. children that we grow up with that really do, like, as much as the people teaching us this have good intention behind it, they don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, at least they didn't. They didn't know how they affected me and you and our growing up and how much pain and hurt we were going to endure because of what they tried to in some way shove down our throats or just tried to gently explain to us mm -hmm. uh, and maybe just do it in the incorrect way. Like I, I talk a lot I like with Kate about how I feel a lot of my growing up was a lot of like holding me back. Mm -hmm. And I don't like blame anybody specifically for it. I just think it is a result of where I grew up. I can't right. say that that was everybody, every single one of my friends' experiences, mm -hmm. but I always felt bigger than where I was. Mm -hmm. But I did also mention earlier that I never actually saw myself leaving Idaho until yeah. I did. I didn't see myself leaving LA. Yeah. And so it's just, it's just, it's such a weird, just dynamic to me that yeah. I just had all these weights just holding me down, not allowing me to be myself. Um, if I had my choice, I would have become like a professional skateboarder or like mm -hmm. a professional wakeboarder. But I just, it wasn't a practical dream. Mm -hmm. like, I knew people who tried to go like pro and snowboarding. Uh, we, we people from the Treasure Valley area were very active people. Mm -hmm. And... Back when I was growing up, if you made it out of Idaho and you were famous, like that was, you know, you somehow found the golden ticket. Yeah. Do you want to hear my... I want to hear the 911 story. story. Okay. Well, uh, since you chose the action-packed one. So, I, when I worked graveyard shifts, working graveyard shifts, it was typically like, when we first started, it was midnight to noon. The shifts eventually, sh like 
<laughs> shifted to <laughs> 6 p.m. to 6 a.m. But anyways, how it would work is like the officers would do traffic stops or they'd respond to calls. But then there was usually a pretty dead hour between 2 and 6 a.m. And if something did happen during that time, it was usually like a real thing. And so we had like downtime and stuff like that. And so it was like I was so tired because I think it was the third or fourth night that I had worked straight. And it was about like 3 o'clock in the morning and the 911 line rings. And so I go... I don't know what's your emergency. Nine one one. What is your emergency? <laughs> so I dispatch officers and I say, you know, six seven respond to one two three four Elm Street. Uh, you know, unknown circs. And uh, so then I'm like sending them, and then I have to send a unit to back them because it's nighttime, and so. <laughs> I'm in a glass and, case of emotion. Exactly. And so so then I start really intentionally calming my voice down. Ma'am, I see that you're calling from 1234 Elm Street. Is that correct? And so I'm sending officers and I'm trying to get information. And I said, ma'am, I need you to slow down just a little bit. There's a man inside my house. There's a man inside my house. Uh-huh. And so then I'm on the phone with her and I'm also sent dispatching officers. I was working by myself. Uh-huh. So I worked in a very small city in LA. And so I'm on the phone with her. I'm handling her. I'm dispatching officers. When you, when you say you worked in a small city in LA. Uh-huh. Because what? LA is LA County. So I worked in South Pasadena. Okay. South Pasadena is its own city. It's about a three mile radius. It's a very wealthy area. They do a lot of filming there. But it also borders Pasadena. Mm-hmm. It also borders LA and it borders Alhambra, all okay. of which are bigger cities that people can sometimes come through South Pass. Okay. And typically the biggest things that happen in South Pasadena are burglaries, residential vehicle, that kind of thing. Although I did also get calls about neighbors putting their trash in, you know, the caller's trash can. So there's also that real crime too. And so anyways, essentially what had happened, she was calling. So then I'm on the phone. I'm dispatching her on the radio. I'm also entering the call into our system, computer-aided dispatch system. And I have to get on the other phone to call the airship. So which is PB-1, which is the helicopter. I'm having to check the map. I multitasked for a living. What had happened was, is like she had gone to the window and she caught a man climbing into the window, spooked him, and he left his like muddy boot behind and like ran away with like one shoe on. And so he wasn't currently in her house, but I had to update the call to a hot prowl, which means that there's somebody there right now. Anyways, it was, so they got there. The man wasn't there. All they had was, like, the shoe print. They were able to lift some prints and stuff. And I actually don't remember whether or not they got him. But it was the most, I'd say, one of the most jolting calls because of the time that it happened and her level of... Her level of panic. Yeah, panic. So. Huh. I wonder what that dude's story was. Maybe he thought it was his house and he was coming home drunk trying to sneak in the kitchen window. That's a very gracious viewpoint. Well, that, like, from what not I, likely. From what I understand about this town, that happens a lot. About Corvallis? Yeah. Oh, 
Um, like you think about like where campus is uh-huh. and the, how many like residential homes are around campus. Mm-hmm. Um, I had a buddy who I, I guess I wouldn't call him buddy. This guy that I went to church with at my old church here in town. He was a cop and he told me like one of the biggest calls they get is just a drunk college student walking into the wrong house thinking it's their house and they like find the couch and fall asleep on it and then you know mom or dad comes out <laughs> at three in the morning like who's this it's so funny that you say that because i actually had a friend who just told me that story that <laughs> same story that was like oh my gosh yeah they just like walked in and yeah with a case of beer thinking it was a party yeah. and then her boyfriend was like wrong house bro like <laughs> and he just left it happens. That's that's like a repercussion of living in a college town. Yeah. Well, Sarah, thank you for this conversation. Of course. Thank great. you for having me. I learned a lot. I love you. I love you. And just thanks for being around and being you. Thank you. You okay? Fall asleep, man. He's the real trooper.